0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello and welcome to the From the Vaults Rugby podcast. My name is Phil McGowan and this World Rugby Museum podcast will explore some of the greatest players and moments in rugby's long history, featuring first-time witnesses, commentary and interviews with the people who have shaped our sport. This time on From the Vaults we have Ugo Monnier of Harlequins England and the British and Irish Lions. We'll be talking about his life in rugby, the epic 2009 Lions tour of South Africa and his philosophy on dealing with defeats, picking yourself up and bouncing back stronger. Right Ugo, thanks for making the time to meet us today. Pleasure. Um, we're going to talk about your life in rugby but before we do that I was going to mention that you're the ambassador for England Rugby Hospitality. Uh, we've got couple of tests coming up at Twickenham how important is it to have live rugby back at Twickenham after the year that we've had
0: it's huge I think sport's always been a great outlet to people has been, been a release at the end of a, a working week and I often think that people often scaffold their week around a sporting event and rugby's so central to so many different communities and um, so for me, as a pundit, I feel so fortunate over the last year or so being at live games and now seeing fans come back into the stadiums, back into the crowds, hearing them, the smell of burgers and chips and, and everything in between, I think just adds to that day. So in autumn, when we get some of the world's best coming to Twickenham, um, we will welcome everyone with with open arms if, if we're allowed to do so. <laughs> Metaphorically, perhaps more so than physically.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed that we're getting back to normality as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, right, on to you, so I've got a little bit of information about your early life, but not a lot, so when did you first get your hands on a rugby ball? It's
0: age 13, um, I was born in Islington and I wanted to play football for Arsenal, that's what I wanted to do, I looked up to the likes of Ian Wright, um, it, was all, it was all I knew I guess, it was hard to escape football in the city London, especially where I was brought up, You know, Tottenham and Arsenal, two of the prominent sides, but At the age of 13, my mum decided to, I guess we moved out of the city and she wanted to put me in a private school. And by nature of that, I was introduced to rugby, um, which I wasn't fond of, to be honest, there just wasn't. I thought, this is stitch up. I only like football, um, athletics perhaps, and, and a few other sports. So I think rugby found me more so than me wanting to find rugby, but I'm pretty glad that I did.
1: What position did you play football? Play striker. So a goal scorer. Yeah. So you're obviously attracted to scoring tries. <laughs> um, yeah. that's quite a common story actually. Particularly from earlier generations, a lot of England players played football when they were young, mm. got to grammar school. Yes. And then were introduced to rugby union and, and, and took it from there. So you went to Lord Wandsworth College, which is yep. a school with a big rugby heritage. Yeah. Uh, you had quite a famous role model there, didn't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, Johnny Wilkinson. Um Lots of people ask me about him, what's he like as a player, what was he like, training, his focus, all the rest of it, and then I'll go on to say that I went to the same school, what's he like as a student? And everything that is synonymous with Johnny Wilkinson as a professional, that was how he applied himself as a student. I think so many of the schools that some of the so many of the skills that you learn in your informative years at school mould you into the professional person that you become. And Johnny was—he was just a model student, as you'd almost expect. Um, he was brilliant, uh, competitive. I remember early days of him, age sixteen, whilst we were like messing around after school, doing kind of anything or nothing—British bulldog or whatever it was. He was out practicing his goal kicking with his dad, kicking left foot, and right foot. He dedicated himself to that craft. And I think when you go back to then, so we're talking late '90s, it was. It was an outstanding behaviour. That wasn't the normal behaviour of a 16 year old. Um, so he was professional before the game was professional, especially at that age. So it's kind of no wonder as to why he achieved so much and had the impact he did because he dedicated his whole life to it. And it's, uh, well, it's brought us our only World Cup. He's an absolute legend.
1: And he was three years ahead of you at school, but you ended up playing on the same team for England. Did he encourage you? Did, he, did you have any interactions? Because three years is quite a lot at that age, isn't it? But
0: we're he? in the same boarding house as well. Right. And he was, funnily enough, a prefect in the boarding house. And um, he was quite small in stature, um, but I do vividly remember one day, so I was at a house called Sutton House and we had like, lovely pitches out the back. And we always used to play British Bulldog in the summer. And Johnny's very um, humble, uh, very quiet, mild mannered, but he's also very competitive and he was one of the first selected to be in the middle of a British Bulldog. And I think he challenged someone, like he'd give anyone five pounds if they could get past him and he kept hold of his money. He, uh, so for as good as he was kicking, attacking, everything else, he was a brilliant um, defender as well. But I remember him as a young fella, whenever the first 15 played, Peter Richards, as we went on to play for England, was number nine and Johnny Walkerson at 10, which was just outrageous at that level. The whole school would come out and surround the pitch, and we'd turn up with bins and just just make makeshift drums, and it was class. They were the the centrepiece of the school was playing for the first fifteen, and then the centrepiece of the centrepiece was Johnny Wilkinson. Um, you know, everyone's everyone knows his story, but we're also talking about a guy who had to be resilient. He didn't get selected for England under-21s. I'm pretty sure I had to bounce back and just work hard. And, you know, the impact I think the school had on him. Steve Bates, who was the chemistry teacher at the school, who then turned to be a coach at Newcastle, took him to Newcastle for his first professional contract. It's Yeah, you look back at a school, not just my memories, fond memories of the school and how I was introduced to it, but then witnessing a guy that was so far ahead of his years in a professional capacity, go on to do everything he achieved.
1: You must've done well as well. You ended up getting selected county level under 17, under 20. Any memories from that? Any teammates that you played with?
0: Yeah, um, I I loved it. I think that's when rugby started to become a bit more real for me, because up until that point, and I think it's really important as a message As kids, it's so important to encourage them. Uh, And that's why I persisted with it, because I didn't know all the rules, but I enjoyed it. I was with my teammates and you get better and you get encouraged. And so you want to do it a bit more because you like the kudos that it gives you around school and you like to be encouraged. And so that's what it was for me. Um, Yeah, I I had great memories. Playing sevens was, just felt easy. I think when when you, um, I was always quick as a kid. So playing, Sevens. Playing rugby with half the amount of people on the pitch when you're fast is just a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, made some good friends at under-20s levels. Um, that's, um, that's with England. Hampshire under-17s. Uh, my, one of my fondest memories was when you played for Hampshire under-17s, you got your name embroidered into the back of your training jersey. I still have that today, 21 years on. It was great. It's like, I don't care how many caps you've got, how many years you've played, the one thing rugby players love is stash. <laughs> and that's a great piece of stash I've got. Under 17s got that. And my first 16 jersey from Lord's Ones of College. i still got that as well.
1: well. We've got quite a lot of stash here in the museum as well. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's those personal milestones, isn't it, that mean something to the individual.
0: Of course. So for me, having 17s and having your name on the back of a jersey, without sounding like a megalomaniac, it was just... It was nice, that's my family's name. It was almost a footnote that I'm progressing and getting better. Getting your presentation jacket, that was great. Turned up getting your kit. It's not just coveting kits and material objects. It was another stepping stone to, oh my gosh, you're getting nearer to being the thing that you've wanted to be.
1: And you had this example of of Johnny going signing for Newcastle. So when did professional rugby become an option or a goal for you?
0: So I got invited to play for harlequin's under 19s it was the best and one of the worst experiences of my life probably right. <laughs> uh, i was really nervous the night before really nervous because up until that point you stay within your age category and now i'll stepping out and trying to play with the big boys so i'd like prepared everything the night before got a train from hampshire to twickenham walked to the stoop walked into the changing room and um, looked around she was under twenty one sorry looked around and I was like, "These are men like I'm still a boy there's some big boys there's lads with beards, like what am I doing here i don't i haven 't even started shaving um, pulled all the stuff out of my kit bag, and I forgot my boots like you can't take me you can't take me serious as a professional if you can't even be bothered to remember your boots. so I went up to the kit man, the nickname was Ratty. I was this little. Kid, and I just said, um, Hey, um, I, I forgot my boots. And you could see him, like, I mean, he's used to dealing with your Will Green to Keith Woods or Jason Leonards. Got this me, and he said, Right, what size are you? some size 11. And he didn't have many boots spare. So I played my first ever professional game in a size, in a left foot Nike size 10, and a right foot size 11 Reebok. And that was my first game I ever played for Harlequins. How did you do? We won, we battered London Irish by over 50 points. I played well and I got invited to play back the next week and I remembered my boots, a bit more comfortable.
1: I guess as a young man, when you get to that situation, it's about mentality, isn't it? You've got to front up to those well-known names that are around you and it's sink or swim, I guess.
0: It really is. Um, And I think it's important to almost illustrate and I guess I've done to a certain extent, stepping out from my age-grade system, being protected by that, playing with peers of similar size and everything else, and I completed my A-levels, protected by the system, and I walked into a change room with World Cup winners. Like, international players, guys who I was watching on TV. um, Sorry, this is 2001, England hadn't won the World Cup at that point. I walked into a change room and there was Keith Wood, Will Green who had just played for the British and Irish Lions. I was just watching you on telly, like how are we teammates? How am I supposed to be able to compete at your level? Keith Wood was named World Player of the Year that year. We have the world's best player in a change room and I've just stepped out of a college gym playing with people that are my age and there's players who are not even in the same decade as me. So there's a bit of imposter syndrome. And for as professional as you think you've been, forget it. That that is professional at an age grade level. Like you're now in a big boy world and you need to be a big boy. And you know, I had early setback, um, broke my toe, was out for six weeks, and Keith Wood was, I think, recovering from his tenth shoulder operation. And I can't speak highly enough of that man, because he's the world's best player. I'm just the kid who got his A levels. And he took me under his wing for those six weeks. He was just remarkable. He didn't need to hooker, winger, probably <laughs> don't have a huge amount in common, um, probably in a normal situation, wouldn't hang out that much, you know, backs stay together, forwards do their thing. Um, and then you've got the best player in the world chatting to this, this kid, and that's what I was. And he taught me what hard work was. He taught me what professionalism was. When I say teach me, he just showed me through his actions. Um, I came back after six weeks, had a trial of England under 19 in the warm up, I broke my toe again, came back to the club. Keith was still recovering. So he just took me under his wing for that year. And I mean, I still stay in touch with him today. And I couldn't be more grateful for everything he was to me in that year and the impact he had on my career.
1: You mentioned sevens earlier. And sevens is where you really got started back in around Mm. that time, isn't it? So you pretty quickly ended up playing for England out on the tour of the Far East.
0: Yeah, Um, that came off the back of another setback. So I went for England at 21's Trials. I remember it like it was yesterday. I shared a room with Matt Stevens. obviously went on to play for England, the Lions. And we had this training camp for three days. I remember sharing a room with Matt Stevens. We were going to find out the next day whether we'd been included, the two of us didn't get included and but we both had a self-belief I remember Matt saying to me like I'll be back and I'm going to play for England I said mate I'm 100% going to play for England this isn't the end so you know you're slightly despondent discouraged but because rugby's so subjective and it's a case of these coaches don't think you're good enough and that's fine because you're in an environment where there's lots of good players but that that's still a message which you take away and you can only respond in one or two ways. You can believe those words and actions and feel disheartened or what I've always liked to do in my career is prove people wrong. So I went back and I got invited to play for the Sevens, went out to Brisbane uh, and my first tour, we also won England's first ever leg of a World Seven series and I got to play the tournament. And
1: that's, our, That was the Hong Kong Sevens, wasn't it? Which is
0: The first one was in Brisbane And then we did Wellington, New Zealand the week after. I flew home, got a phone call from England under-21s who said, oh, we'd like to bring you back into the squad. I was like, well, that's weird because I was the same player. I was two weeks ago, but the exposure to the 7s, I guess, made them believe in me. And so then I then played for England under-21s that weekend against Scotland. I scored two tries and I thought, I was just happy that I proved them wrong because like, I was the same player I was two weeks ago. They just didn't see it in me, so it was great. But yeah, I then went on to Hong Kong Sevens.
1: And you're still a teenager at this point, right? Uh, and you're flying to places like Shanghai and, and Hong Kong. What's What kind of an experience is that? What's that like?
0: I often say like rugby changed my life, and it, it did. It's not a cliche. It truly did in so many different ways, which... Yeah, I don't think people fully understand... The impact but just simple things so when i played for england we went to brisbane that was the first time i would ever been on a plane i would never been abroad it's amazing so i'm this kid i'm 19 i'm playing for england sevens i'm getting on a plane um i'm turning left what's turning left everyone's like turning left what does that mean well you're, you're in business class hang on a second how am i this 19 year old kid sat in business class i'm off to australia i never left the british and irish isles it's crazy. And then you're playing in a big stadium. We played at Queen, Queensland Reds old stadium, which is Ballymore. You're playing in front of 30,000 people. I'm like, what is going on? What is going on? I was just playing around, just kicking rubber balls around on school field. So it's all quite... It's an incredible experience and being exposed to that level of pressure Um Stepping out of your comfort zones and working with a brand new set of people from different clubs around the country, different coaching staff, and understanding what it is to be a good teammate, to bond, and then to perform at the highest level. That was that was great at 19. Um, and then to be part of a successful side as we were back then was, was incredible. So for so many different ways and reasons, I was experiencing things on multiple different levels all for the first time.
1: Or was that the first time you played at Twickenham for the Sevens? Yeah.
0: Ah, uh, yes, yes. I, I think so. I may have played. I think I may have played once before. I think I played once before the Middle Six Sevens of Harlequins. Right. right. But running down a tunnel with a red rose in your chest, in front of a crowd. It's just. It's. It's madness. It it, it really is. It feels weird talking about it now because I feel like I'm talking about another person because. That was a life I once lived, but it's not just the impact to myself. It's your friends, your family. It's it's everyone that helps you along the way, and that's that's probably the most pleasing thing about all of it.
1: Yeah, uh, 2003 four, England sevens finished second in the series. I think they get they win two of the two or three of the mm-hmm. the legs, which is the the best England have ever done. They've never done as well as that since. So, did you see yourself as a sevens player then, or were you always planning to come back to fifteens?
0: I felt. Sevens was my route into 15s, and whilst I was still developing and learning the game, I was also developing and learning the game in a slightly different way. Higher pressure, bigger stakes, um, cool skills as a winger. The one thing Sevens gave me was just tremendous amount of confidence. Um, every time I caught the ball, I, I thought I'd score. That's a good mental asset to have on the pitch, you back yourself a little bit more. Um, but as much as sevens did so much for me i had to be a student of the game 15s if i wanted to make it to uh, international level so um the sevens was a it was an incredible program and we had the most phenomenal side phil greenen uh, tony rokes who's coaches gp sevens simon amore who was previously with england was he also was Named World Player of the Year one year, Ben Gollins, who's on, an all time great in sevens, Richard Horton turned referee, two of, two of us on the wings, Henry Paul in this end. The week. We had this phenomenal side, Phil Dowson, Um, with this phenomenal side. I mean, we just had so much fun because you're travelling the world in this small bubble with all your mates and you're winning tournaments and it's, yeah, you couldn't want it for anything else.
1: Um, back at Quinn's, you've got yourself, Chris Robshaw, Danny Kerr. Uh, Mike Brown, Nick Easter, Nick Evans, so this crop of players developing alongside each other that would go on to achieve everything in the game.
0: Yeah, it was, I feel like there's a common theme off the back of like every kind of setback, something really positive has come out of it. Um, You know, we're here at Twickenham and some of my fondest memories have been here at Twickenham with Club and Country and being part of the the first team to win Harlequin's first ever Premiership is something I'm obviously very proud of, but that 2012 team was born in 2005 when we got relegated. Um, you never want to be relegated, um, but I guess once again, it's your perspective on things and how you look at things. And w- we looked at it as an opportunity to blood some youngsters and Danny and Mike Brown, Chris Robshaw. Um, Nick Easter became part of us, Joe Marler, um, Tom Williams, Jordan Turner Hall, I mean, the the list goes on. Um, So, so yeah, then getting to 2012 and winning it, and one of the most satisfying things has been sat in the changing room, and, you know, I'm part of the media world now, and I think also a special part of our game is the accessibility that we give to to fans and, and viewers, spectators. You know, we've got cameras in the dressing rooms. We run onto pictures. We want to hear instantaneous reactions to everything. But in 2012, walking off the pitch, celebrating with our with our fans, walking down the tunnel, going to the change room, just shutting the door to the outside world. That's what it felt like, and just having a beer with everyone that put everything into that success. And you just look around, and that, you know, Harlequins is your team, but these are these are my mates that I've known for. 10 plus years, I'd grown up with him. Joe Marler, straight out of school. There we are, Carl Sinclair. You know, he was another Harlequin great, John Turner Hall. He finished his GCSEs, came to Quinns. Danny Kerr moved down from Leeds, turned into a boy at Harlequins. George Lowe, Nick Evans, moved over from New Zealand and one of the first conversations he had about us is he's left his all black career behind. The things that give him satisfaction is watching us English lads become internationals. So it was like, it, it was, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was quite nourishing, very satisfying.
1: And as a group, you moved up through the ranks, so you played for the Saxons together. And apart from Danny Kerr, I think you were the first to get an international call up?
0: Uh, at that group, yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, and that would have been, that was, 2000, was 2008, yep. played Pacific Islanders. With Danny at nine. That was it was nice. Danny Kerr at nine. Um Johnny Wilkinson at ten. First time I played for England, got to play with him. So there was yeah, it was it was it was a, it was a really special day. My family was there and you're singing the national anthem and all the families, girlfriends, wives, husbands all sit together and um it was nice to be able to sing the national anthem and like just 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 see your family in the crowds. It's yeah, it's it's one of the special things, and people always ask me, what's it like running out of Twickenham? Eight to a half thousand people. And I can only try and make sense of it. So when I played at school, whenever my mum came to watch me play, like, I always, you always look for your parent, your garden, whoever it is. You always look for them. And that sense of satisfaction, like they're, they're there, they're proud of you, it is amazing. So if you ever... Played for a school team across any sports, drama, music, choir singing, whatever, and that feeling of spotting your parent in the crowd—that's what it feels like running out at Twickenham. But times about eighty-two and a half thousand—it's yeah, it's it's a good feeling. What was it like playing for Martin Johnson? (laughs) It's class. See, he's he's a legend. He's he's a legend. Like he doesn't waste many words, but his words are very impactful. Um, he definitely wasn't, he was, he was definitely a tracksuit coach, um, I remember one of the first sessions, I spoke about it just recently, got involved in a morning session and I think it was Nick Kennedy gave him an uppercut in the session, <laughs> like, he probably got stuck in, uh, but he was great, um, and I remember before, I think it was my first cap, he was addressing everyone, he said, um, you're more likely to win the lottery than play for your country. Didn't quite get it and he said well there's two national lottery winners every single week you don't get brand new caps every single week there's been more lottery winners than there's ever been players to play for their country it's special and and he's right and i remember the morning of the first game we stayed at penny Hill park i got everything prepared the night before didn't want to forget my boots this day and um, I put my presentation jacket on the back of the chair and on the back of it, it just said England. I remember just waking up and just looked up and just reading the words England. It's funny, the small triggers or cues that you get, but just reading and seeing that you're like, I'm actually representing England, not a population, what's 60 plus million. And it, there's just a few landmark moments throughout the day where it does feel special. Um, It's just another reminder of who you are and who you're representing. And that's why, yeah, that's why it's just, it's just an unbelievable privilege.
1: All right, so, 2009 Six Nations, you're on the edge of the team now, so you're in the squad. Um, Ireland have got a really good team that year, and Wales are strong as well. So England are competitive, but they lose those two first games, which opens the door for you. Uh, and you come in, is it against France? France, yeah. And then against Scotland in mm. the last match, which you scored your first try for England.
0: Yeah, so I like played the Autumn Internationals, went okay. It was disappointing not to be involved in the first few matches and then got given the game against France, which was great. And we won, it was a big game and I played pretty well. And then the Scotland game, that was a big game for me. It was first Calcutta Cup match. Um, first try but I also think that was the game that got me in the Lions tour as well um, but I was so revved up in the week because <laughs> uh, all week they were talking about the threat of the Scots coming down and there's Tom Evans on the left wing I, I played left wing I played 11 he played 11 and I just remember like listening to this interview where they were talking about whether he was the fastest winger in Europe and that just wound me up just thought fastest winger in Europe okay and I didn't care who scored that day but it just couldn't be Tom and I was fortunate enough to be alert enough to track back and track him down and make a try saving tackle but I thought I I made my point there Um, yeah and then yeah I scored a try it was it was was a great day for me but yeah I, I think that was the game that got me in the line still for sure
1: I'm quite familiar with that try because we've, since then we've been using it in one of our schools workshops for people that come here as an example of acceleration and speed, and it's just a quick burst around the outside past two players in at the corner. Yeah. Um, all right. So when did the conversation start getting around to Lions then?
0: <laughs> so Graham Roundtree was one of the Lions coaches. He's one of the England coaches. We finished the Six Nations, and um, he spoke to me. He said, "Mate, you're in the mix." And I think if you've had a good Six Nations, you've got to be in the mix, but you just never know. It's more subjective, isn't it? Um, and he said, you're in the mix. Um, ne- let the next four matches be the best matches of your life. then they were going to select the squad at the end of that. So, I mean, that's all I need to hear. That was it. I uh, went back to club, just applied myself, worked really hard, and I was confident, and I was playing really well. But once again, you don't know. He... Um, Graham said to me that um, they're discussing Shane Williams, Lee Halfpenny. Uh, and I think, oh, no, sorry, it was Luke Fitzgerald and myself. I said, OK. So I think Tommy Bow was definitely going. Um, and it might have been a straight shootout between Luke and I. I wasn't quite sure. And then you get to the day where they announce it. And historically, they'd always sent a letter or got a phone call. So I woke up that morning, went down postbox, nothing's there. No phone call, I'm just like, oh, well, maybe it's not to be. Um, we had a team meeting of Harlequins that day. The squad has been announced live on telly. So we just like, ran into the team room and a number of us, uh, David Strettle, Nick Easter, Danny Kerr, had all been given letters, provisional, that, that wider squad. Um, and they started with um, the back three. They named Rob Carney, Rob um, they named Luke Fitzgerald, have uh, Keith, that was Luke Fitzgerald. And I thought, well, if it's a straight shirt, they just named his name. Like, well, Then they named my name. And it was really weird because sort of, of course you're ecstatic is everything you want to hear, but at the same time, there's a lot of players in the room who are waiting to hear their names. I couldn't really celebrate. In fact, I didn't. Everyone else did. And then all the names got read out. And unfortunately, no one else from Quinn's um, heard their name and... It was, if you can imagine, the biggest adrenaline spike. At the end, we went out, had to train. I got in the car, rang my mum, she's crying, shouting down the phone. I then went home, and it's so anticlimactic, but I just turned my phone off and like hit the sack. I was drained, I was emotionally drained. Because all you think about it consumes all your thinking, what, for four weeks? And then you hear this news and say, so, yeah, I just turned my phone off, went to sleep, I was shattered. But yeah, it was a good day. So
1: Lawrence Delaleo said that being selected for the Lions was better than winning the World Cup with England. Um, a lot of players say it's that special.
0: It is. Yeah. It is. It's the most exclusive rugby club in, in world rugby. Um it's the pinnacle. It's you know, the all blacks think their jerseys very special and it, and it is, but there isn't a more special jersey than the British and Irish Lions. Um being the best of the best at anything is is incredible. Um, so bring in, and and that jersey does something which no other country or no other union can ever testify to doing. The All Blacks' phenomenal jersey history, South Africa the same. There's lots of big names, Wallabies, Argentina, whatever, but none of them have a unified a unifying effect which the British and Irish does, bringing England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales together is something that we should be so proud of we should really foster and celebrate and that's why it is the best jersey you can put on Um, going on that tour rubbing shoulders with what I believe the the legends of that last era your O'Gars um, O'Driscoll's Paul O'Connell's your Stephen Jones your Martin Williams we're talking about players that play for the country a hundred times plus, done it, seen it all, Uh, multiple tourists. Um, So to be with them, learn from them, call them teammates is quite remarkable.
1: And it was Ian McGeacan's last tour, wasn't it? Mm.
0: What do you remember of him? He's just everyone's rugby's grandfather, isn't he? Um, He's been around the block, player, international coach, Lions. He is Mr. Lions, isn't he? And... He's able. He has such a good emotional connection to what it is to be a lion because he's been one. Um, but he probably um, dictates it better than better than most. Yeah, and he, he does. He feels like your dad on tour. <laughs> um, and you know, I had some incredible moments with him, some really sad ones because it wasn't a successful tour in 09, unfortunately. But he's just he's just a good bloke. He feels like family.
1: That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash loss Right, so in the regional matches, you scored four tries, which was the most. So you went into the first test as, in as the Lions' leading try scorer. Did you expect to be picked for that,
0: or was it a surprise? Well, I was confident. I, um, I remember speaking about it. I shared a room with Jamie Roberts before they announced the test squad, and... I played well in the warm-up games, and that's all you can do. Um, scoring, like, pretty much every opportunity I was getting. Um, I was defending well. I, I, I felt confident. I felt confident, but you never know. And Shane Williams was the current well player of the year as well. Quite a good player. Um, Tommy play, Tommy Bow was playing well. Luke was, you know, everyone was playing well, of course, as you'd expect them to. So um, I definitely wouldn't say I was surprised. Um, because you back yourself, you believe in yourself. I was confident. Um so it was great. It was great to be handed that test start, that jersey, have that, you know, privilege of you know, trying to represent everyone to the best of your ability, but that's the crazy thing about rugby, because you know, you start the match thinking, wow, like this, this is this is everything. This is everything. At the end of the match, you're feeling a totally different emotion. Like I've said it a number of times, like I am. Um, um, I believe in heaven and hell, um, and I think I've probably experienced what heaven and hell feels like on on a rugby field as well.
1: Right, I'll apologise, but let's let's go through hell just very briefly. <laughs> so, so the box scored first. Yeah. You then got over the line, but were held up by De Villiers. Yeah. Inches, really. And th- that would have that would have levelled the scores, probably.
0: It's it's mad. I've I've not. Wa- I, I watch that game back for the first time in the first lockdown, so twelve years on. And I watch it. And I think, jeez, that was close. And also, how was not how was the penalty try not given? <laughs> Got JPP who so takes my head off <laughs> to start with. <laughs> And you can't strip the ball when you're on the floor. You, like that's, They're both just, they're laws. And it's tough to compare laws from 09 to 2021. but high tackle has forever been a high tackle. Mm. <laughs> the law of reefing the ball has always been the law. Um, but there's no complaints over the second opportunity I had in the second half. So this
1: is, you literally get inches of the line, don't you? And then...
0: Yeah, um, Rob Carney puts me away, Mornay Stain is coming across and I step him and he just dislodges the ball out of my arms. As I'm like going to drop over the try line, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm not the only one, I'm sure. I'll say I say there's a few million people at home thinking I can't believe it as well. It was, yeah, 12 years on, it's probably just as painful, but unfortunately you can't rewrite history. You don't get, many second chances in, in the game.
1: The Lions came back and they, they rallied late on and, and could have, you know, caught South Mike Africa. Phillips
0: took the ball over the trial on second half. Yeah. Like How we didn't win that match. Yeah. How we didn't win that match. And that's, that's the best South African side they've ever had. In the history of South African rugby, that is the greatest South African side. And that's what's painful is that we had an opportunity to beat the world champs in their backyard and yeah, beat the best African side there's ever been in my opinion. That's like, I'm retired now, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I can't impact it.
1: So you and the whole team must've been gutted at the end of that. But for you personally, right, you, you've, your rise has been meteoric. Two, two and a half years ago, you are playing in the championship and then you're starring in the biggest game in the world. Did you, 12 years on, can you reflect on that more philosophically, or is it still just too raw?
0: Um, I can. I mean, right throughout this conversation, I've had setback after setback, which has led to something greater, I think. Um... A lot of people write you off. You know, we live in a world full of opinions, but the most important opinion is the one that you have of yourself. And that's never changed. It's that I've always backed myself, always backed my my, my work ethic, sorry, my application, my skill, my everything. The people around me surround myself with good people. So in a world where people keep asking the question, like, why not? I'm just, I always want to challenge that. I always want to challenge that. It's it's like fuel, it's energy for me. Um, and it's not... My sole purpose isn't to prove people wrong because I think that's bad. If you're looking for an external motivator, then then you don't have it. You don't have enough of yourself. don't believe in yourself enough. But it's quite fun proving people wrong. I love it. Um, but I've always had a belief in myself and what I could do. And like my route into rugby was not your I guess your archetypal one but it's great you know I always say it, I grew up wanting to play football for Arsenal but end up playing rugby for England and the Lions how did that happen if you back yourself you prove yourself you apply yourself like anything is possible like in the first lockdown I remember speaking to my I've got a four-year-old daughter and one evening I said oh Felix what do you want to be when you grow up and she said I want to be the fastest girl in the world and I was like wow, I was taken aback. But what I took out from her was no one dreams bigger than children because no one's ever told them they can't do anything. So their world is as big as they want it to be. So should my reaction be like, oh, geez, that's that's big. Or do I just go like normalise that level of thinking and and dreaming but just make sure that I can put the foundation in for her, her to be able to apply herself to be whatever she wants to be. I'm sure next week it'll be something else that she wants to be, but that's fine. But the nature of that vision, I think, is something that we all need to foster. Um, so, like, looking back, and I watched that series for the first time in the first lockdown, I was blown away by it. I've said it previously. It, I felt like I was watching someone else. There was an amazing drone shot of Alice Park, and I'm like, I did that. That's, that's quite cool because whilst you're playing rugby, it's such a cyclical world. You play for the Lions for the first time. Wow, that's awesome. And then by, by Thursday, Saturday night, you're already thinking about the next game. You don't have time to like relax, reflect and go, that was all right. And you never want that mindset of patting yourself on the back and like living in that moment. But now I'm retired, I probably still haven't fully done it, but there are moments when I'm like, that was pretty cool. <laughs> Pinch yourself moments, yeah.
1: The second test Mm. is recalled as one of the greatest tests of all time. Yeah. I think if that had been the third test and the decider, that tour would have never, ever been, would never be forgotten. It would be. Agreed. One of the greatest. It probably is one of the best tests uh, series that there have been. You're watching it from
0: the sidelines. Yeah. How does that feel? Not a very good spectator. (laughs) I'm not a very good spectator. Um, It started well for the Lions. It started very well for the Lions. Once again, terrible referee decision. You know, nothing against... It's not a personal thing against Schottberger, but you can't eye gouge and get a yellow card. Like, that's never been a yellow card offence, anyway. And then fine margins once again, isn't it? Mornay stain, his boot. um, The toll on the players that day. And that really has stood the test of time in terms of that level of physicality. Because often, you know, that's... 12 years ago, that's just as physical as anything we see today. But my memories, um, of that match is probably more vivid. Everything that happened after I remember, feel a sense of helplessness cause you can't do anything to affect it. Um, there's nothing you can say to make people feel better. Um, and part of any loss is you have to go through a, a grieving process. Um, yeah, you, you have to, you're, you're human, it's okay to feel sad and down and out, but you've got to also find a way to get yourself back up and get at it again, but I remember walking down the tunnel, walked past Simon Shaw, Simon Shaw's been on three lines tours, that was his first ever test cap, and he got man on the match that day, and he's crying as he's doing his interview, and i like, oh. okay walking to change room. Adam Jones had his shoulder dislocated and being a big, muscular man, they couldn't quite relocate his shoulder. So there's two doctors like holding his shoulder, his head, trying to relocate so you can just hear screaming from him. You've got Brian O'Driscoll, who got knocked out. I think it was Dwayne Vermeulen, a shot on him. He doesn't know what day of the week it is. Um, You've got Gethin Jenkins, who fractured his cheekbone blood everywhere. You've got Jane Roberts who fractured his wrist, load of pain. You've got Ron O'Gar in the, in the corner of the change room, concussed and his eyeball so swollen from the collision that he took trying to make a tackle in the corner. So there's just devastation everywhere. No one's saying anything. And so Ian McGeegan tries to like address the team and he just breaks down crying. And like I said, he's like everyone's rugby grandfather. So when... <laughs> You hear him. That was the worst atmosphere I've ever been in a change room. Like, never ever wanted to feel like that again. And I didn't even take part. Um, so yeah, that was that was horrific. That was, that was that was dark that room.
1: I'll just summarise the score. So with 62 minutes on the clock, the Lions were 19-8 ahead, and it was level with what 12 seconds to go. Uh, and then Mournstone kicked that 40-yard penalty to win it. So as a neutral spectator, it was an astonishing match, but yeah. the physicality that you referred to was also unparalleled, I think.
0: I think that's why it's such a special game, because it had everything you'd expect a lion South African game to be, physical, attritional. But then the storyline on the way in which the game unfolded, 11 points up, looking capital to, oh, it's a draw, it's gone. And so was the series, just like that but but that that's that's sport. and the shame about all of it is, yeah, because we, we believe it's a series that we let let go. we let it slip, and when you look at the team that taken us Africa this year, I mean there's only one player from nine that's made it back, which is Wynne Jones. So you don't get a second bite of the cherry. You don't, it's, it's phenomenal. When you look at South Africa, there's only one member from 09 that's back, two, sorry, Franstein and Mornay Stein. You know, the lifespan or the life cycle of a lion. once every 12 years for the three home nations, it's you get one pot 12 years into eight weeks into 240 minutes of rugby, that is it.
1: You personally did get a second bite of the cherry, though, because you were back in the team for the third test. Mm. Because the margin of defeat was so narrow in the first two tests, I think everybody thought that the line should still be in the series at that point. Yeah, There must have been a high level of determination for those who were selected to, to win that third test.
0: Yeah, um, we had to find a way to get ourselves back up, and the morning after the second test, Geech tried to speak to us again, and he broke down again, and then... We went on safari for three days. Like, we've got to get some sense of enjoyment back, so we did that. Had a few beers along the way. Um, I think we only trained once that week. I'm not saying this is our philosophy forever, or anyone should adopt this philosophy across the season. You won't be successful, but uh, on one offs, I think it can work. So we were like, by the time we got to Friday, we were we got a mojo back. We were bouncing, buzzing. A few changes in the team, and. You know, for me, I was highly motivated to right some of the wrongs on the first test. And it was just so important. In, in a country where rugby's a religion, we had more fans, more travelling fans than they had in stadiums. You ran out and it felt like a home, a home match. That's how it felt. So it was important we represented our fans as best as we could. And we'd done a significant job of doing that without getting the result. We had to get the result. And we did. And... You know, we did a lap of honour. It wasn't a lap of honour; it was a lap of appreciation for our fans. People criticised and all the rest. Why are you doing a lap of honour? When you get thirty thousand travelling British and Irish Lions fans, it's important that we celebrate them and just say thank you for your unwavering support. It's people who say for four years longer to be on the tour. It was special what we what we did and. 3-0 to the Lions would have been unjust, it just wouldn't have felt right, you know, so I'm glad that we at least ended the tour on a positive note and then could hand it on to the, the squad in 13 in, 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 a, in, in a better place.
1: So just to go through it, so if Shane Williams scores two tries in the first half, it's Amazing. 15-3 I think at half time, which is quite similar to the second test so there's no room for complacency but then i think it's on 53 minutes the second half you get a similar chance or you get another chance but it's an interception this time yeah how far did you run
0: about 75 i think 75 not plenty of
1: time to think about it
0: yeah feels like a a lifetime um it's the greatest feeling catching an intercept um you rarely have time to think about anything on the pitch um And it was important as a defensive set. um, South Africa camped in our 22. They'd been there for a number of minutes. And had they scored, the doubt of the second test starts to creep in. I never intended to intercept the ball. I wanted just to shut down the space. We'd worked a hard, heavy press. It's something that Sean Edwards instilled into us. So I think they had like three-man overlap. I just ran up just to shut down the space. And that's the thing about most things in sport... You have split to set second decisions. That's what you have to make. And as I got within like one or two yards, I thought I, I can get to this. And so stuck my arm out. And you know that's that's the risk reward, if you call it risk, that you have to toss up in your mind. You drop it, it's probably yellow card. You score it, and you still talk about it 12 years on. Um, but yeah, it was a great feeling. It's um, there's a real sense of like freedom, there's a real liberty when the second I caught it, I knew I wouldn't be caught. Um, I just knew I wouldn't be caught. So although I ran in 75, I probably only, as a sprinter, you probably only have to sprint for 40 of those metres because you've done enough to get away. And I stick my finger up in the arm, which is not good sprinting technique, but I knew at that point it was over. Um, and then celebrating, honestly, you look up and I could just see red everywhere just everywhere the noise was just phenomenal and genuine it's probably probably the greatest feeling i ever felt on a rugby pitch it was yeah it was, yeah, it was really cool
1: i think that that try probably took the wind out of springbok sales yeah. and it finished 28-9 so the most comprehensive victory of the three games mm. uh, and a good way to end it as you say it's hand over to the next team. so you're back in the Six Nations squad the following year. Um, wins against Wales and Italy a draw against Scotland. And then you got, I think, injured
0: towards the end of that campaign. Yeah, I got knocked out against Scotland. Uh, head collision with Kelly Brown. Um, um, away at home. Uh, sorry, uh, away at Edinburgh. Um, we drew that match. So I didn't finish the end of Six Nations. And um, Chris Ashton... Played the next week against France and they won away in France, I think. And that was, it felt like the handing over the baton. Like Chris Chris had been playing brilliantly well in the Premiership, got his opportunity and, and took it. Um, so, yeah.
1: So and that, that, that's, that ruled you out of the World Cup 2011 and then Martin's gone yeah. at the end of that. Yeah. But back at Quinns, that's your season, isn't it? That's the season there. There was a
0: number of us that were disappointed. Uh, Chris Robshaw being one, Danny Kerr just for the World Cup. I felt I should have gone to the World Cup I still think that today. Um, it's livid. But once again, you've got to channel your frustration uh, to try and get something positive out of it. And So I went back to Quinn's and buckled down, got a head down. Um, I think we started the season breaking a Prem record, most consecutive wins. Um, we i think top from start of the season to the end and walked across from the stoop to the big stoop only a small journey for us and ended off the season just as we intended to start you start every season with a goal and promises and commitments and we lived them we absolutely lived them we were relentless with them we had such a good vibe in our camp it was amazing that was But we had fun that year. Yes, it was successful. And sometimes that's the the amount of fun you have determined by success. But I think, of course, that was a cherry on the cake, wasn't it? But we just had so much fun that year. And off the field, our team socials, the way we played, we loved it. We loved everything about it. It was one of the most pleasing aspects about that campaign.
1: And what was it like playing for Conor O'Shea?
0: Brilliant. Remember his first team talk he walked into the change room we were about a few minutes before we we're about to run out I've forgotten who we we're playing and he was there in his thick Irish accent he was like guys I don't care if you win or lose today I don't care he just kept repeating and I was just like who the heck have we side this coach who doesn't even care whether we win but what he was trying to impress was if we just focus on the outcome we'll never get our processes right the only important thing are the process I know it's become cliche but it's true we you focus on it, and we had three KPIs, key performance indicators, and we knew if we got those things right, we would win. So he wanted us to focus ourselves on or staying in the game, staying in the moment, winning those moments, winning 10-minute chunks. If we did that, the outcome would look after itself. So all he was doing was trying to take pressure off a young group of players that hadn't had a huge amount of success, which allowed us to express ourselves more so. He wanted us to be what we were born to do. Danny Care, run. Hugo, run fast, score tries. Nick Easter, run over the top of people. You know, show that sense of leadership. Uh, Chris Robshaw, just be brilliant. And unfortunately, we were for most of the season.
1: Um, you got a swan song with England, didn't you, in 2012. Stuart Lancaster coach now. It must've been different, I guess. There's a new team in the making there, isn't
0: there? Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was, it was probably quite a tough period, I think, you know, for England off the back of, like, 2011, the World Cup, um, how that ended. Um, 2012, we went to South Africa. Um, I had a real bad hamstring injury and then ended up leaving that tour early with concussion. concussion. Um, and that wasn't a successful tour. 2013 was a bit better. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was a real sticking period where... We wanted to play better rugby, wanted to change the fortune of our results. And I think what happened, 2013, was that the game at Wales, the Grand Slam match, which-
1: That was the last game of the, the campaign, yeah, yeah. Very, very memorable for Welsh fans.
0: Was it like 50 odds? I mean, it was, mm. it was a real tough period. Um, and of course, all of that with the backdrop of a World Cup in mind. Um, of course, we know how that one finished.
1: Yeah, so Stuart did a lot of work around the ethos um, about what it meant to represent England. Yep. The dressing room must have completely changed when he came back for that game against Fiji. Mm. Uh, the dressing room still like that today. So a lot of the players that he brought through were still with the England team now.
0: Yeah, he laid the foundations. He offered lots of opportunities, especially when you look at that last game of that World Cup against Uruguay, that 10-12-13 partnership it was still operating today. Um, I think Stuart probably admitted himself I mean, he's a brilliant coach. Look what he's doing at Leinster. There There's never a doubt about his ability, I think. Because he knew the size of the job and he wanted to be across everything, where actually, in hindsight, what Stu Lancaster and the England team needed was more people in charge or Stu just focusing on the one thing that he's very good at, which he's now doing at Leinster. And perhaps he spread himself too thin trying to trying to bring England back to where he believed it should be. And that's, it was the gift and the curse of his. He was so passionate and so committed to doing it all that he did it all, where what he probably needed to do was relinquish some responsibility and and allow him to perhaps take a step back to have a broader vision and view of everything. So, but like I've said on, throughout this conversation, um, and he wouldn't have wanted to go through it. And it was unfair, a lot of what he did go through. But it's so good to see how he's bounced back and responded and celebrated at length there, because they've probably been one of the... In fact, they have been one of the most consistent club sides in World Rugby for the last however many years.
1: You've come back to it as a central theme many times about how you respond to disappointment um, and how you get back on the horse and, and try again. Um, i want to ask you about your personal faith um mm. i've I read a quote that you said that you would rather miss training than miss church <laughs> so how important has that been to you throughout it's your huge
0: trip? it's been a it's it's been a constant um it's been a moral barometer it's been something that i've lent upon um um yeah, it, it's, it, it means a lot to me. Before every single game, I'd ring my mum and say a prayer on the phone. I'm playing a game at the Stade de France, and uh, the change rooms uh, are underground. They're like yeah, basement, no reception. So I had to <laughs> like run onto the pitcher, like hide behind one of the like post protectors, pretend to be um, doing a hip flexor stretch, just so I could get reception to me to my mum. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something I'm really proud of. I think I'm happy to be open about my faith, but I never want to impress it upon people, if that makes sense. It's like the CrossFitter who wants to tell everyone he's into CrossFit. It gets quite boring hearing about it. So if people want to ask me about it, I'm more than happy to discuss it. But, um, yeah, faith has played a a huge part in, in, in not just my rugby life, but but my life as a whole. But I think sometimes when you come out and you say your X or Y or Z, um, there's a hesitation to do it because by me saying I'm a Christian, and people, it, the automatic response is whenever you make a mistake, well you meant to be a Christian, but I saw you really drunk that one night, or you did this or did that. It's like yeah, me saying I'm a Christian, I was a rugby player, um, but I made loads of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, there's so many uncontrollables in, in professional sport that I, that I think there's, that's one of the reasons why there are more Christians in, in professional sport because
0: yeah that's a good point yeah um, but it's I think for as confident and capable as you are in a professional sport I think behind the talent there is a human and that human needs as much nourishment and support um, I call it human scaffolding um, as anything, because to get the best out of the talent, you need to get the best out of the human. And I think sportsmen and women often focus so much on their craft that they actually forget to focus on themselves as a person and develop. Um, and I guess me trying to develop as a, as, a, as a person and have better perspective, um, coping mechanisms, everything in between, as well as enjoying everything about the Christian faith is actually putting some time into myself, and I did that through, through the church.
1: All right, and lastly, I want to talk about British Nigerians and their contribution to English rugby. It's been so, quite a number. You're, you're one in a link that well, starts with Andrew Harriman, yeah. Chris Ote, now goes up to Maro Itoje. Yeah. So, tell me about that.
0: <laughs> it's mad because rugby is just not a thing in Nigeria. Like we've got a sevens team, but the Super Eagles, our football team, are good. They're they're good, and they. I mean, there's amazing memories of them watching at World Cups and African Nations Cup and being successful, but rugby, no. So why have we got so many Nigerians that have gone on to play for England? And the simple explanation is the private school system. Um, Education's massive in an African household, none more so than a Nigerian household. My mum didn't want me to play rugby. I said to her, after doing my A-levels, I was going to take a year out, to see what this rugby thing's about. She said, no, you're going to uni, you're gonna get um, a degree and a proper job, is what she said to me. (laughs) That is the mindset. I'm glad I ignored her that first time. So yeah, we see Nigerian mums and dads wanting the best education for their kids. So they go to private school and at most private schools they play rugby. And that's how we get exposed to it, the same as I did and, They're good enough, they filter through into academy systems and go on to play for England. It's that's if you were to ask every single Nigerian who has Nigerian Nigerian lineage heritage, what school they went to or ended up at, they'd all say private school. And that's the simple reason.
1: Okay, so that I mean that's that has a much older tradition in in rugby, the the private schools and the link with, with rugby rugby union. Um all right, one final question. So a few years ago you did a bit of work around urban rugby um for the RFU. Yeah. Um, how important is that to get people of very varying backgrounds playing the game? It's
0: huge. It's huge. You know, we spoke about it in Nigerian context there, but on the path to playing for England is a well-trodden path and it works really well. Private school, academy, premiership, England. Um, but only 7% of the population goes to private school. Imagine if we could have a broader conversation with the 93% and you know, you look at the team that played last World Cup, lots of them started at state school that ended up at private school. And I would love for rugby to have a bigger footprint in the highly densely populated cities, London, Birmingham, Manchester. In terms of the impact it's had on my life, and I said it's changed my life, I think it has the opportunity to do that. For millions of other kids in this country, if, we're willing to perhaps go off the beaten track and do things that we've never done before. I think it's amazing. In terms of the success of the team, opportunities, uh, not just rugby as a sport, but its values. I think it has remarkable powers to be able to do all those things. So that's why I'm really passionate about it. Um, Because I feel like the lucky one out of my state school that got the opportunity to go to private school. So i forever say, on the World 7 Series, I was the quickest on the series. In the Premiership, at my peak, I was the quickest in the Premiership. At my state school, I wasn't the quickest guy in my year. I just wasn't. You know, if I made it to a district trial in a Fado, I was doing well. Like, there's a lot of talent, natural talent out there that needs exposure, um, needs fostering, um, needs sculpting in some way and i think rugby is such a great sport it truly is a sport for all different shapes and sizes and if we could perhaps tap into inner cities and that um, secondary school um, um, sector then i think there's a lot the game can give kids boys and girls and i think there's a lot those boys and girls could give our sport
1: so what's the answer then? More clubs, more coaches in towns and cities? Or is it yeah, all in the school setting? It's,
0: it's, it's, it's a really good question and the answer is unfortunately not as simple as that. So lots of state schools during the Margaret Thatcher era um, sold off lots of their sports fields for housing, for money. Um, so if you've got one field, um, unfortunately, and you've got three 400 kids, you're probably only going to play one sport. Um, and the national sport in this country is football. And so you're going to put up goalposts rather than rugby posts. Rugby's a far more difficult sport to, to coach. Um, you've got the health and safety um, responsibilities of all of that when you get into scrummaging line and all the rest of it. So so that's one reason. When you look at where the majority of rugby clubs are plotted in London and Greater London, they're in rural areas. So now you've got the... Uh, situational problem which you need to tackle of if all the rugby clubs are out in rural areas, how do we get inner city kids to rural areas? I was doing some work in Birmingham, and for kids to get to their rugby club, they have to go on three different buses. It takes them an hour to get to a rugby club so it 's quite a big commitment, so I think we need to somehow get rugby into the inner city and By the way, I mean I was fortunate enough to be in Japan over two thousand and nineteen <sighs> and I'm not recommending this, but they play rugby on gravel every single weekend. So this notion that you need this immaculate bit of 4G or grass to play rugby, I, I don't think holds much water. I think there's so many different varieties of our sport which can be played in sports halls that can be played on, on concrete if it's tag or whatever. I know health and safety is paramount, but I think there's so many different forms of our game that, that don't need a full-size pitch. And the number one thing rugby can do to help itself is actually eliminate some of the unnecessary barriers. The fact that rugby's called an elite sport, I just, I don't know why. It's bonkers. You're only speaking to a certain sector of people. It's not very inclusive. So I'll tell you this, when it's hard to compare apples to pears, but when Wales play rugby at home, over 75% of their population watch them because it's known as a people's game. In our country, it's known as an elite game. So it already excludes quite a number of people. There's nothing elitist about our game apart from its roots and its history. It's not like you need 50,000 pounds to buy a horse to play the game, that's elite. You need, what, a tenner? All you need is a rugby ball to play the game. So it's not elite at all. So remove those barriers to make it feel a bit more inclusive in the first place would be my starting point. Thank you very much for your time, Miguel. Cheers, mate. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to From the Vaults. If you're not already, please follow us on at WRugbyMuseum at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Sign up to our blog, also called From the Vaults, on WordPress. And more importantly, come down and visit the World Rugby Museum here at Swickenham Stadium. Please subscribe to From the Vaults for regular content like this.
0: Planning for your next trip?